0: This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, despite an ongoing pandemic, Colorado has seen a record number of new businesses start up in the past year.
1: The only real thing that predicts entrepreneurial opportunity is radical change that happens quickly.
2: Plus, we get details on the big transportation funding bill lawmakers passed this week.
0: And we revisit the strange tale of a bulldozer rampage in Granby. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin
2: O'Toole. And I'm Tess Novotny. State lawmakers passed a major transportation package this week. The $5.4 billion spending plan is now on its way to Governor
0: Jared Polis, who is expected to sign it. The bill represents a significant shift in how Colorado funds maintenance of its roads and bridges. For more on this, we're joined by our state capital reporter, Scott Franz. Hey, Scott. Hey, Erin. Let's talk about the key points of this bill. What does it do?
3: This 200-page bill is trying to make up for years of neglect on Colorado's roads, and it, it does this by changing how the state funds them. Lawmakers like to make speeches here almost every week just about how poorly our state ranks in terms of the quality of our roads. They're also frustrated that voters keep saying no to ballot measures trying to raise taxes to fix them. So this bill is essentially their way of getting more roadwork done by shifting the cost to the people who use them.
0: Well, how is this going to be paid for?
3: Well, that is the most controversial part of the measure. In the first phase, lawmakers are actually using federal coronavirus relief money to the tune of about $300 million. The state is also going to pitch in some with its general fund. You know, This was another concession that they really needed to make to get support for something like this but the bulk of this plan the billions of dollars that they're expecting to raise over the next decade is actually going to come from residents who will have to pay new fees almost every time they hit the road you know that includes when they go to the gas pump and when they get things delivered from Amazon and even when they hop into an Uber or Lyft you know and then finally they're also raising registration fees for electric vehicles and all of this together is expected to generate hundreds of millions of dollars each year.
0: You mentioned in years past, lawmakers had to go to voters to ask them to approve a sales tax to pay for roads. Do they need to get voter approval before all this takes effect?
3: Supporters aren't planning on it. They say, you know, they're following things by the book. And because these are fees, they don't need to go to voters. But You know, this is a complicated question because you might remember voters just last year passed something called Proposition 117, which really sought to limit government spending by saying if they try and create new enterprises and collect fees, they need voter approval. But Democrats have strategically designed this bill to create multiple enterprises that they don't think will ever come close to um, reaching the revenue caps that would trigger the need for an election. Um, so that's drawn some criticism kind of from Republicans that they're trying to skirt around this new you know, voter mandate about creating new enterprises. But the counter argument is they won't be collecting enough money to necessitate an election.
0: When will Coloradans start to see these fees take effect?
3: They're not going to happen right away. The first fees actually roll out next year, For example, the new gas pump fee will start uh, at an extra $0.02 per gallon, and it goes up about a penny um, until it reaches $0.08 a gallon. The delivery fee will clock in at $0.30, so it's, it's a little more significant, and that actually will start next year as well.
0: Do we have a sense of how these fees might add up over the course of a year?
3: Well, that's a great question. I'm sure lots of residents are are wondering what their stake in this will be. You know, CDOT, the State Transportation Department, has done a study saying that the average driver will pay about five extra dollars at the gas pump next year. Uh, But as that gas fee gradually rises over the decade, the impact, they say, could reach as much as $21 a year per driver. And then there are the deliveries. Amazon, Grubhub, we've all been using them more these days, so this will be um, another significant investment we'll have to make. Uh, The state did another study about two years ago, estimating that someone would pay an extra $8 if they ordered 30 things in a year. I know I probably quickly reached that threshold this year.
0: This bill is interesting because it really seems to target those things that we do every day, like the food deliveries, package deliveries, and these things do take a toll on our infrastructure. Was that a deliberate consideration when lawmakers created the bill?
3: It was. You know, this is a really big change in philosophy. You know, for years, our roads have been funded by a gas tax that hasn't increased. You know, the architects of this bill say they were very deliberate in in trying to decide what to put fees on. And I'll I'll let Steve Finberg, he's a Boulder Democrat who leads the majority in the state Senate, tell us, you know, how they decided where to put these fees. You're ordering lunch on on, from Uber Eats. You're ordering your toilet paper or different things for your home on Amazon. You are Uh, using the roads one way or another, probably dozens of times a day. And so we need to figure out how do we, in this modern day, how do we pay for our roads? And he goes on to say that the current system, you know, which relies on that gas tax, is not capturing any money to fix roads from many of these people who are still putting wear and tear on them by summoning these delivery vans to their homes or hopping in an Uber.
0: This triggered hours of debate at the Capitol, Only one Republican got on board with this bill. Why are they so against this?
3: It is surprising because Republicans have, you know, just like Democrats, been railing against the quality of our roads and and wanting more investment. But they see things very differently in how to get that funding.
1: It really should be called a tax.
3: That's Chris Holbert. He's a Parker Republican who leads the minority in the Senate. He's also questioning whether this bill is legal.
1: It's another end run around the taxpayers' bill of rights. Republicans, conservatives in Colorado are going to be infuriated by that. I suspect that people in the, in the political middle will be frustrated by that because polling shows that people in the political middle embrace Tabor, the ta- their taxpayer bill of rights. And I would say even people, on the, some on the, on the political left, would be frustrated by that,
3: too. Now, you just heard him talk a lot about Tabor, a quick reminder that something voters passed to prevent lawmakers from raising their taxes uh, without going to voters. But Democrats counter, they're doing everything by the book, and they can still charge fees as long as they don't collect too much of them.
0: What happens next with this?
3: There are some interesting parts of this bill that have nothing to do with money. It actually orders a new study on autonomous or self-driving vehicles, trying to lay the groundwork for when those become more mainstream, it also forces CDOT to do more studies on how the roads they're building and the projects they're funding affect greenhouse gas emissions. So this you know, has an environmental component as well. Perhaps even more significantly, though, it really cancels a ballot initiative that lawmakers had planned for this year to basically asking voters if they could fund road work through taking on new debt issuing bonds things like that so again um, just a real change in philosophy to go to the the combination of fees and and general fund.
0: Scott Franz covers the state capital for us. Scott thank you so much.
3: My pleasure Aaron.
2: Colorado is emerging from the COVID-19 pandemic, and economic experts are bullish about the state's recovery in the coming year. More people are getting vaccinated, and it appears that folks are ready to get back out and spend money. But even before the vaccination drives were rolled out, and as long ago as last summer, a lot of Coloradans were starting new businesses. KUNC's Ray Solomon found some of these pandemic entrepreneurs. Look at your guy.
4: It's a chilly morning at the City Park Farmers Market in Denver, and a steady stream of people are visiting Annabelle Shin's booth.
2: I'm the owner. I also call myself a love producer of Preserve. We make uh, healthy frozen pet trees.
4: So what do you have here? I see blueberries, spinach, squash.
2: We're a Whole Foods-based company for pets. So what's
4: on the table? It represents the ingredients that we use in our treats. Her kiosk has a gourmet feel to it. It's designed like a boutique, right down to the cute pug on the company logo. And nothing about her business screams pandemic. But...
2: I started the business officially. I registered with the state in mid-March 2020.
4: This was a couple of weeks after the pandemic led to furloughs at her day job, and it turns out this farmer's market is full of similar stories.
1: I sold my first kombucha uh, in June, so almost a year. So I started my business in July of last year, 2020.
4: We both lost our jobs
5: in the restaurant industry.
4: In March, I want to say. Of this year? Of this year, of 2021, yeah. In fact, entrepreneurship has been growing statewide. Secretary of State Jenna Griswold recently reported an increase of nearly 20% in new businesses registering with the state since the start of the pandemic.
2: New entity filings hit a new record in Colorado showing that Colorado entrepreneurs, even in the midst of the recession, are still at it. Entrepreneurship remains strong. This
4: seems to fly in the face of the more common narrative of businesses struggling or going under. So
1: what gives? The only real that predicts entrepreneurial opportunity is radical change that happens quickly.
4: Jeff York is a research director at the Deming Center for Entrepreneurship at CU Boulder's Leeds School of Business.
1: In the wake of, of natural disasters, for example, you'll see an uptick in entrepreneurship.
4: Meaning what might seem far out in normal times can be practical when life is upended. And he says community engagement often drives people into disaster entrepreneurship.
1: They try to figure out ways, new opportunities to both create you know, for-profit ventures, but also to try to solve some of the problems they see happening around them.
4: Federal stimulus money may have helped people take the risk, and there's also just the sheer necessity of getting by.
6: People who didn't have jobs, lost their jobs or furloughed or whatever, they were pushed
4: into entrepreneurship because they didn't have any other opportunities. Don Thelmini is an agriculture economics professor at Colorado State University. She describes entrepreneurship as a push pull dynamic.
6: Pull is that you see a really clever idea no one's acting on that. There definitely was a pull here and it was the shift to online. We saw billions of dollars shift from people eating out to eating at home. And so people were look were spending more money on more interesting quality things and Local, regional, entrepreneurial.
4: Now, any business expert will tell you that the vast majority of new ventures fail within the first few years. But this pandemic year has been exceptional in countless ways. And Jeff York says that could translate to better prospects for fledgling businesses.
1: One, you're going to be forced to start small. Starting
4: small is always his number one piece of advice. And he says those looking to create a customer base from scratch might find they have an edge this year, too.
1: People had to change their behavior during the pandemic. And once people start to change their behavior about some things, they tend to psychologically be more willing to change their behavior about other things.
4: Like sharing locally produced frozen treats with a favorite animal pal. What breed is it? Uh, She's a mini blue pit. Back at the farmer's market, Annabelle Shin is counting on just that. She's invested about $10,000 into her company more than a year after getting started. She sells her frozen pet treats locally at farmer's markets and at a handful of retail stores in Denver.
2: Right now, I mean, I've gone beyond breaking even. I am been making a profit, so that's good. But it's not enough for me and all the expenses in my personal life. So I will always be, I'll take whatever job that I can in order to support this venture.
4: Shin is now looking for a permanent commercial kitchen where she can manufacture her treats to keep up with demand. And she says she may have to hire someone this summer to help with production and to hand out treats at the farmer's market. Ray Solomon, KUNC. Thank
2: you. I hope you guys love it. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank not you. Not at all. Bye. You're listening to Colorado Edition
0: from KUNC. Seventeen years ago, on June 4th, a man named Marvin Heemeyer got into an armed, armored bulldozer and went on a rampage in Granby, Colorado. He damaged many buildings before dying from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. The incident became known as the Killdozer Rampage. Granby resident Patrick Brower witnessed the rampage and the events that led up to that day. He's the author of Killdozer, the true story of the Colorado bulldozer rampage.
2: Last year, he spoke with KUNC's Matt Bloom just ahead of the release of a documentary called Tread, which explores the history of the incident.
5: Tell us about who Marvin Heemeyer was.
6: Marvin Heemeyer was a uh, a guy who had moved to uh, Grand Lake, but he opened a uh, muffler repair business in Granby in 1992 after moving to the county. He immediately got sort of politically involved in issues. He was initially involved in trying to uh, support the effort to bring legalized gambling to Grand Lake. And uh, then uh, shortly thereafter, he got involved in uh, trying to sell property he had bought at auction to his neighbors, the Dochefs. And in the course of trying to get that property sold, he ended up fighting the Dochefs' effort to build a concrete batch plant right next to his two-acre plot in Granby. That fight was very public. It went through the Granby town board, and in the course of that fight, he didn't always get his way. He ended up suing the town and the Dochefs, but he ultimately lost his lawsuit against the town and the Dochefs, and somewhere in that time period, he just went over the edge and decided he was going to get back at the town The Dochefs and anybody he felt who had wronged him in the course of this fight and in the course of actually living and working in the Granby area.
7: The Thompsons are guilty. The Dochefs are guilty. The Granby Town Board is guilty. The Granby Planning Commission is guilty. It took all of you 10 years to get me. You got me, no doubt about it. I got screwed big time. Enough is enough. I have been beaten to a point where I'm not going to take it anymore.
5: What happened on June 4th, 2004?
6: Well, he drove his 85-ton armed and armored Komatsu D-355A bulldozer out of a steel shed that he used to own in Western Granby and... He drove out of the building. He had three rifles mounted in embrasures in the side of the tank. He had remote viewing cameras, uh, five of them, so he could see where he was going because there were no windows in this. There were a few sliding steel doors so he could see where he was shooting. And he proceeded to... Uh, basically attack anyone he thought had done him wrong.
2: And then he went after the concrete company first. He then made his way down Main Street of Granby and actually was taking out buildings as he passed, took out the t- much of the town hall, took out the library, he may have gone through the Liberty Bank. It actually looks like he might have punched in one side of a new Liberty Bank in Granby and came out the other.
6: In the course of that, he fired uh, his fifty caliber at a state trooper, Dave Batura, and he fired at a sergeant in the uh, sheriff's department, Rich Garner, then he ran over and smashed a uh, a new truck just purchased by the sheriff's department. He headed uh, east into town where he proceeded to destroy many other buildings.
5: And that included a library that had children in it.
6: He didn't know who was in or not in the buildings. And the best example of that is the library. The Granby Library was located in the basement of the Granby Town Hall. And only literally probably two minutes before Marv actually smashed into the side of the building and totaled it, five children were evacuated hurriedly out of the building because they heard that this bulldozer was coming probably to the town hall.
5: And you were there in Granby, Colorado, during all of this. Tell me about what you saw.
6: Well, I was the uh, publisher and managing editor of the local newspapers, and I had actually been covering all those meetings I knew Marv back when he started the gambling fight and then also when he was going to the town to try to fight the doches. I basically saw the whole thing from uh, the very beginning of Marv's interactions in the community.
5: This happened in
6: 2004. Has the town moved on? Well, from a physical point of view, uh, yes. Most of the buildings have been rebuilt and most of the newer buildings are a lot better and nicer than the older buildings. So in that sense, you could say Marv helped Granby get a little bit of a facelift. But I can promise you that not one of the people that had to go through that, they'd probably just be just as happy to be in their old buildings without all the heartache and loss they went through to actually do the rebuilding. As far as uh, psychologically and mentally, this, uh, this bulldozer rampage kind of hangs over the town because there's a lot of people that have... Uh, taken on the cause of Marv as if he was justified in attacking the town and attacking the people. And one of the reasons I wrote my book was to try to point out, well, here's what really happened. And when you see the facts, you kind of see that, you know, there's really no justification ever for what Marv did.
5: In your dedication for your book, you dedicate it to the people of Granby who continue to endure the long lasting impacts of the momentous day. What do you hope putting this story out in in your book and working with the uh, director of the new documentary, Tread, what do you hope that accomplishes for the people of Granby?
6: Well, I hope the truth can get out there to the world so that they have a more balanced picture of what actually happened that day and why it happened. I think it's important to gain a little bit of a sympathetic point of view of Marv, but even when you have a sympathetic point of view you end up seeing that he made this whole thing into a mountain when really it was just a molehill.
5: Patrick Brower is the author of Killdozer, the true story of the Colorado bulldozer rampage. Thank you so much for joining us.
6: Hey, Matt, thanks for having me.
2: You can go more in-depth with this conversation and find a link to Patrick Brower's book at our website, KUNC.org.
0: movie from Iran called There Is No Evil won the top prize at the 2020 Berlin Film Festival. Iran did not allow its director to attend. And in fact, his films have never been shown in Iran. KUNC film critic Howie Moffiewicz, who teaches film and television at CU Denver, says this is one of the most courageous
7: films he's ever seen. Mohamed Rasulov's four-part, ironically titled There Is No Evil, starts in a dark parking garage that right off gives you the willies. The tension grows as a man drives down a long aisle on a curving ramp. But this film is no American crime picture or spy thriller. The country of Iran may be in the grip of serious tyranny, but Iranian filmmakers are still making the most challenging movies in the world. They go head-on at the vicious hypocrisies of censorship, religious fanaticism, and corruption. Mohammad Rasulov is among the bravest of them. His 2013 film, Manuscripts Don't Burn, is about the state-sanctioned murders of dissident writers and intellectuals. A Man of Integrity from 2017 is less direct. It's about the corruption of a rural irrigation system, but implies the dishonesty of the entire Iranian government. You might call There Is No Evil a capital punishment film, but capital punishment films are about crimes and how the condemned people are usually innocent. There Is No Evil gives no attention to what those about to die have or have not done or what crimes may have been committed. The film never shows the supposed criminals, except for one image of the feet of a group of people hanged. This film is about what executions do to the people who, as the grim saying goes, pull out the stool to complete the hanging. Yet each of the stories pictures human life. None are lectures, but they recognize that moral questions are part of the lives we lead. The four stories are about individual execution workers, if you want to call them that. One simply endures. Two who are forced to do it run away with different outcomes. And one is a dying man years later whose life has been cursed by what he did, and the consequences continue to fall on his grown daughter. There Is No Evil confronts its characters and its viewers with the most profound moral dilemmas. The first brilliant story, called There Is No Evil, shows a family man, He's the one who drives in the garage. He works at night, comes home, rests, and then picks up his wife at the school where she teaches. She chatters, they go to the bank, she complains to her husband. They pick up their young daughter at her school, who scolds him for coming late and badgers him to get her a pizza. <laughs> They shop at a full stocked grocery store. They visit his mother. It's a day full of events that are typical here as well as in Iran. Then you get a glimpse of what he does at that night job. Now that the audience has lost its innocence, the next three stories are more direct. Soldiers who will be punished if they don't pull out the stool weigh the immorality of doing that against what will happen to them if they don't. It's the question of principle versus personal desires. In the third story, a young man is so distraught about confessing to his girlfriend just before her birthday party that he strips naked and dives into a river, trying to cleanse himself. The last and beautiful story is about a doctor who left medicine in the city to raise bees in the desert. His agony for years has been what to tell his daughter and when. There is no evil goes to what the philosopher Hannah Arendt called the banality of evil. No leering villains here. It's about average human beings trapped by the machinations of an evil society, which is faceless and bureaucratic and protected. But these execution workers have no such camouflage. They're hostages to a wicked society that rules by fear and murder. And these average people suffer forever. For KUNC, I'm Howie Mavshevitz.
0: You can find this and many more of Howie's movie reviews on our website, KUNC.org.
2: That's our show for today. Next time on Colorado Edition, we look at how masks are coming off in many long-term care facilities, even when workers there have chosen not to be
0: vaccinated. I'm Tess Novotny. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team also includes Alana Schreiber and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.